and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, animal behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for agencies, researchers, and NGOs. Today, I'm joined by Mary Weikstra of Action for Cheetahs in Kenya and Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes to talk about the work that we are doing here in Kenya. We are recording outdoors, so if you hear some traffic or lovely Kenyan birds, um, you're not hearing things. So welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you're able to be here with us in Kenya. Yeah, me too. Um, It's lovely to get to sit outside in a t-shirt and uh, bare feet after uh, a long winter. So let's start out, kind of give us the 30,000 foot view of like what carnivores, livelihoods and landscapes is, how Action for Cheetahs fits within that, and then how the Scat Dog program fits within that. And you can give us as much or as little of the kind of program history as you want. Okay, thank you. Um, So Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes is our registered organization. So basically that's our legal entity. Um, It allows us to have employees and put all the employees under the um, regulations for pay scales and and have all the legal entities of an organization. So we're registered here in Kenya as a not-for-profit, limited-by-guarantee company, and we're registered in the U.S. as a 501c3. Underneath Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes, it was set up to be able to host programs in Kenya wanting to get set up in research but not wanting to register their own organizations. And we started with my own organization, which is Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. And ACK has a mission to do conservation of cheetahs involving communities, research, and and outreach programs. Um, So it made sense to go ahead and and put our program underneath an organization that could be a legal entity that could do more than just cheetahs. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the sake of the guarding dogs program and to not make it go too long in explaining organizational infrastructure, um, ACK is the program under which we, we started the detection dog program. Gotcha. And how long has ACK been around? Did you found it or did you take it over from someone? So I am the founder of the program here in Kenya, and Lori Marker, who is the founder of Cheetah Conservation Fund, is a co-founder with me here. Mm -hmm. I was actually based in Namibia um, Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, and Dr. Marker asked me what I wanted to do with my life, and I said I would really love to start cheetah research in Kenya Mm -hmm. because I don't see anybody else doing a specific cheetah project, and I love Kenya. Mm -hmm. So she began to give me some of the contacts that she had. I made contacts and found out that the Kenya Wildlife Service and several other um, conservation landowners really wanted to get a better understanding of cheetahs, felt that those numbers were declining, that populations were being fragmented, and, and asked if CCF could do anything. So I was hosted by CCF to start the first three years of my work in Kenya and fell in love completely with being here. Um, So we continued to work very closely together as we developed a program that we decided was best to basically form its own organization because the legal entities needed to be done here in Kenya and everything like that. Also for fundraising purposes, if you're not under exactly the same organization, it's a little easier to seek similar funding without being competitive. Um, So that's when we branched off from being under the umbrella of Cheetah Conservation Fund and formed Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes. Um, So the Action for Cheetahs in Kenya project to be totally focused on cheetahs. Not all programs under Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes need to be that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And you do... Aside from the scat dogs, which obviously we'll talk about a lot, and that's going to be everyone's main interest, but I figure we get all the background done first. You're also doing a ton of work right now trying to vaccinate and sterilize some of these domestic animals as well. So do you want to talk about that work and how that relates to cheetahs and why that's so important? Mm -hmm. So at, at one point several years ago, I was out doing some community interviews and there was a very playful puppy mm-hmm. that, that I started to pet and play with a little bit and suddenly the dog turned on me and bit me. Mm. It was like about a seven or eight month old dog. And so, um, I, not thinking a lot of it, it did draw blood. I have my rabies vaccine, um, so I didn't think too much of it. But then two days later, one of my field officers said, oh, that dog that bit you died. So suddenly I was like, oh man, maybe that dog did have rabies. And so I said, well, do you know if the dog was vaccinated? And he went, what? (laughs) 
So I started to do a little bit more, you know, searching around in those communities and found out that there really wasn't a vaccination program going on, started to look at what programs were going on within Kenya and found out that the government of Kenya had a mandate by 2030 to have all dogs in Kenya get vaccinated because about 2,000 people per year in Kenya die from rabies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so alongside of the government, we then initiated a rabies vaccination program up there. Shortly thereafter, we found out that also there were a lot of domestic dogs dying from what people were calling rabies, but was actually distemper. Um, and then also some wild dog populations in the Laikipia and Samburu area got infected with with distemper as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we added distemper after a couple of years to the vaccination campaign. And then, of course, I started to find out a little bit more that when puppies are born out there because they don't want more puppies, they kill most of the female puppies so that they're not giving birth to more and more, but they mm -hmm. don't do sterilizations. So I partnered with another organization called TNR Trust, which is Trap, Neuter, Release. Mm -hmm. And we implemented another program two years ago with spay and neuter, which the community is happily embracing that they can get their dogs sterilized and, and they become protectors of livestock against predator invasions in their homestead. So mm -hmm. our first research showed that dogs were living to be only about three or four years out wow. there wow. Um, because of diseases, because of snake bites, because of dog fights. But if we could get their dogs to live longer have a bit better population control and disease control, then those dogs can protect their livestock and their livelihoods for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, so we use our detection dogs to also show the community about proper dog handling, um, care and feeding. So it becomes an education tool yeah. um, in everything that we do related to each other. Okay, yeah, and that's helpful. And then, so it sounds like the distemper can get out into some of these wild populations as well. So part of this is also kind of reducing overall disease load or, gosh, what did we talk about early in COVID? You know, flattening the curve. Exactly. <laughs> um, Herd immunity. Yeah, kind of exactly. Things. Yeah, it, it's basically kind of the same thing. With rabies, it's very well proven that dogs are a main vector mm -hmm. in both human-induced rabies and in moving into wildlife as well. Um, nobody has yet totally confirmed that that is what can control um, the, the distemper po in, in the population of wild dogs and wild cats. Mm -hmm. Cheetahs, lions, even hyenas can get distemper as well. Yeah. So a lot of times if a wild animal like that is sick, you don't necessarily see it. It goes off into the bush and hides. You just start to see a lowering of population. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been seeing as we've seen these distemper outbreaks happening in the domestic dogs. We're seeing a decline in pretty much all the predators happening at the same time. And we have seen some wild dog populations up there with the distemper as well. Mm -hmm. um, in Lykepia, they have the wild dogs radio collared and that's how they know really how many packs had been impacted by distemper and doing the testing. Um, but you know, a lot of times a wild animal just goes and lays under a bush and just dies because yeah. nobody sees it sick. You don't know for sure what it died from. Right. Um, sometimes inside the parks, but, but inside the parks are not as highly infected by domestic dog mm -hmm. related things. So 78% of cheetahs live outside of national parks and reserve wow. and therefore yeah more than 78% of our work needs to be outside of parks and reserves. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so aside from potentially these distemper and rabies things, you've talked a little bit about fragmentation and connectivity and overall habitat loss. What else is, are, are our cheetahs up against and how are, how are they doing? Yeah, so retaliation for livestock loss has always been a big thing. But even more so is the land fragmentation, like you just mentioned, in, in development of highways and roads that are, that are not passable, putting up huge fences. Um, so a lot of our work looks at how related the cheetahs are to each other across large landscapes mm -hmm. and where there are pocketed populations, how healthy are those pocketed populations. Mm -hmm. Because you're always going to have source and sink populations where there's going to be a few more where the conditions are good, but then you need those dispersal areas for them right. to move across and ultimately to find each other to mate. Yeah. And so in order to do those kind of studies, we needed to take a big landscape approach. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we brought the detection dogs into the program. Yeah. So tell us about 
where your detection dog program started um, and then take us up through the present because I know we've had we've had a bunch of different working dogs and a bunch of really cool success and work done with them so far. Yeah. Okay. So I learned about the use of detection dogs in 2003 at a workshop about landscape level cheetah conservation. And that was the first time that I had seen what was possible, started to think about it. We were already initiating a national cheetah survey where we were just basically getting out into all the areas where cheetah populations had been in the past and looking at what their status was. So from 2004 to 2007, we did this national cheetah survey without the dogs, constantly thinking about what would make it easier, how can we show how connected they are, and it kept bringing me back to what dogs can do that people can't. Um, so I had a dog of my own that had a strong play drive and I thought well let me just give it a try mm -hmm. and so without any kind of real special training myself I consulted with a few organizations based here in Kenya that do security dogs and that's how I learned a lot more um, about how to train a dog um, our problem was we also didn't have the funding for like a dedicated person so we were just doing it on our own and and Ginger who was my dog at the time picked it up pretty fast, mm -hmm. but she had some behavioral things like she really liked to chase rats mm -hmm. and the smell of a rat trail would supersede her smell of a cheetah trail. Um, so, you know, we made a few mistakes with her, but we were really doing it just to see how it would work. Um, the second dog that we got was from a Tanzanian organization and she was already trained on explosives and mine detection. So it wasn't hard to teach her to move over to cheetah scat. Yeah. Um, we had a dedicated person at that time who had come on to our program and we were just about ready to get started when a training session that we were doing in some tall grass, the ball got thrown into the tall grass, the dog fell into a hole and ended up breaking her neck. Gosh. So yeah. we then had the tragedy of not just losing a dog that was ours, but a dog that actually belonged to someone else. Yeah. And again, you know, looking at, you know, are we doing things the right way and began getting other consultants on board with us. Um, and unfortunately, that dog Mara ended up having to be put to sleep. Um, and we proceeded on with a project using field officers mm -hmm. to look for places where there were cheetah scat, where cheetahs were sighted. Very excitedly, they picked up almost 300 cheetah scats. Uh -huh. And we thought, wow, this is great. We don't necessarily need dogs yeah, to do this. Who needs dogs? <laughs> then we went to the lab. Uh -huh. And in the lab, we found that only 27 of those poops that we thought were cheetah <laughs> turned out. So less than 10% mm -hmm. of yeah. the scats that we found turned out to be cheetah mm -hmm. um, using the human eye rather than the dog nose. Yeah. So we went back again to the drawing board and said, you know, if we're going to do this on a national scale, mm -hmm. dogs are pretty much the only way we're going to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, so we were able to get some funding through a couple of different organizations, get some volunteer consultants to come on board. Um, and in the process of that, we started our Scat Dog Saving Cheetahs program. Yeah. So about what year are we in now? So that was in 2012. Okay. When, when we started getting the funding and mm -hmm. in 2015, um, is when we got Maddie. Um, that's short for Madoa Doa, which means spots in Swahili because he had a speckled chest. Um, we just thought Madoa Doa would be a good name, but that's a long one, so we shortened it to Maddie. Yeah. Um, so Maddie became our first official dog. Um, we sent Maddie to like a boot camp at a, mm -hmm. um, a facility that also trained security dogs. Mm -hmm. And while there, there was another dog named Warrior who bonded with Maddie and who would go into training sessions with Maddie. Mm -hmm. So when it was time for us to pick up Maddie, that security company said, you know, Warrior's not the best at um, explosive detection, which is what we wanted her for, because she she searches a lot with her mouth open and, and in, in a situation of life or death with explosives. Dogs who search with their mouth open tend to not be as good at finding the explosives. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she was great with, with the poop. So Maddie and Warrior became our first two official um, scat dogs. And we brought in a full-time person that, that was just doing the dogs and started taking interns to work with them. So we had extra hands learning as well. Um, and we did pilot tests in four different regions of Kenya. So this was in 2016 that we started actually doing the pilot tests and the dogs were doing great. So we moved 2017, 2018 into um, more 
rigorous studies in our main study area up in Samburu. Um, and ultimately the dog found, dogs found 100 scats and 99%, there was like two out of 100 um, that were not cheetah when we f took that back to the lab. So we've been writing a couple of papers so that it strengthens our case with authorities giving us permission to come on to private properties, going into national parks and reserves. And we, in 2019, we got permission to go into Samburu and Buffalo Springs National Reserve, uh -huh. um, which is like one of the first times ever that yeah. dogs have been allowed to be used inside of a national park. Mm -hmm. um, so they have anti-poaching dog units that are on the outskirts, but usually follow outside the park right. for yeah. poaching and, and on a lot of private sanctuaries. Um, so again, we wanted to make sure that we followed up with that. So we published a paper mm -hmm. on the use of dogs inside of a national park and reserve. Um, and have the buy-in from the Kenya Wildlife Service to give us permission, which then, you know, letters from KWS saying that we have authority to go into parks, we can take that to People's Private Conservancies, show them the papers we've done and how the dogs can be done very professionally without chasing wildlife away yeah. um, and can do what's needed to be done in places where we really don't know um, how many cheetahs or what their connectivity to other areas are. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, I don't think you have to sell me or our listeners on, <laughs> on the utility of dogs, but it's really, I mean, major kudos to you to have heard about this. And I mean, you've spent 20 years building this program. It's, it's pretty cool. And then, so we've got another young dog on the, per on the team as well right now. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Percy? Yeah. So in 2019, um, one of our consultants had bred his Belgian Malinois who were already trained in security and um, drug detection. Um, and he happened to have a very large litter that he was able to be selling. So he said, I would be willing to donate two of the dogs to your program. Mm -hmm. And so Artie and Percy, um, Artemis and Persephone, were donated to the program. So for the first time we had Belgian Melanoise, which was also another learning curve for us. Yeah. Um, the level of energy and, the, and, and what they're able to do in detection compared to, you know, the what we call Shenzi dogs or mixed breed dogs who are wonderful, but the drive of the Belgian Melanoise, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, unfortunately, earlier this year, um, Artemis passed away due to complications from tick bite fever. Mm -hmm. um, and so Percy and Maddie are now the two dogs. I had told you earlier about Warrior. The reason Warrior is no longer on the team is that Warrior is an older dog and she had a heart murmur. Sorry, my cat is meowing too. That's okay. Um, Animal friendly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Warrior had a heart murmur that ended up causing her to have a heat stroke while on the job. And so we had to retire her because... Even on medication, the heart murmur wasn't going away yeah. and therefore susceptible to heat stroke. Um, so Warrior loves the couch now yeah. um, on a regular basis. So anyway, Artie, Artie was doing well. Persephone is doing wonderfully. And um, Percy and Maddie are about to head back to the field with you. Yeah. So... I think I've told people on the podcast before how I heard about this job and how you and I got connected, but why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of like the thought process going into finding these outside consultants and what you're really hoping for out of the program um, in, in the short-term future, and then we'll, we'll talk long-term reach goals at the end. Um, so there's, there's a lot of good detection agency and security agencies here in Kenya, but not a lot of people with conservation dog experience. And so I began, you know, reaching out to other organizations, some of which charge very large fees to be able to come and do consultations with us that we just didn't have the money to do. Yeah. Um, and so we basically did the advertisement asking for people to come and volunteer to be consultants. And it connected us with you and your organization, mm -hmm with another organization in Austria. Mm -hmm. um, and we have been working with another consultant who um, works in the UK and is mainly with, had been mainly with man trailing and, and airports. Mm -hmm. And so we've combined all of these people with their behavioral knowledge, with their conservation dog knowledge, with their certification knowledge, 
And luckily we got such a great response of people willing to donate their time in exchange for being able to spend time here in Kenya and, and have an opportunity to work in a different area. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in your case, a lot of it is building your resume as well, um, showing that, you know, you can help our program along. And so we're so grateful for all of these people who have offered to help donate their time for a small research project that doesn't have a huge amount of funding, but has a huge amount of drive. Um, so, so that's how we've connected with all of these consultants. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's pretty close to what I what I had in mind. So, um, you know, right now, what we've been looking at a lot is it seems like the dogs are in pretty good shape. The dogs are doing really, really well, but we've got a pretty green team here. So we're kind of working towards getting everyone up and ready and ready to dive back into a field season. Do you have anything you were particularly excited about tackling with the team or excited to see come out of them in the next year or so? So we have been doing minor parts of the national survey over the last couple of years. And, you know, what we found in terms of the materials needed for genetic studies have been in a few key areas. Mm -hmm. And we've had a team that has had a high turnover. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, a lot of it has to do with the pay, Mm -hmm. but some of it has to do with expectations comparing to um, security dogs versus conservation where you're just literally out in the field all the time yeah. and a lot of these young people are starting families not only do they need the finances to start their families but they don't want to be away from their families for extended periods of time so with a super high turnover and our inability to keep people for more than a couple of years it has made it really difficult for us to move into we're ready to do field work we're starting field work and suddenly people are leaving yeah. so What we geared this segment with all of these advisors is we do have some younger people, a little pre-family age, Mm -hmm. um, that intend to stay with us for a longer period of time. And as they build their skills and get to a point where they continue to take take interns and other people, as they get to the point where they're they're in need of, of being able to be closer to family and not out in the field all the time, Um, it is our hope that then they can be giving guidance to teams Mm -hmm. and not have a turnover where the information leaves the program and we're starting over each time a new person comes in. So we're developing this program now in a way that our interns and our handlers have a longer period of time with each other before the next one might be leaving to go back to school or whatever the other reasons. Mm -hmm. We've had various reasons, um, you know, why people have left the project. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. And, you know, I know one of the things you've talked about as well is just also planning for, okay, if we know that people on average are staying a given amount of time, how can we structure our program and plan for that and not end up being lost yeah. um, in the middle or losing losing this knowledge? Yeah, you know, and, and the expectations that people come into a project mm-hmm. like this having, it's such a new field, especially for mm-hmm. here in Kenya. Maybe yeah. not as much in, in some other countries, but in Kenya... Um, you know, dogs have been used in security for a while. Dogs have been used in anti-poaching. Um, but the idea of searching for species, both in, in terms of flora and fauna, um, it, it's very new. Mm-hmm. So we're building capacity in Kenya mm-hmm. so that also these interns, whatever they decide to do in the future, have this background of knowledge that they can take into future jobs or hopefully for some of these new ones staying with us longer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we've talked about this before on the show, but even in the U.S., um, which is probably one of the stronger, you know, center pieces of the conservation dog world, that expectation game is hard to set. And it's even if you kind of think you know what you're getting into. um, And, you know, I know whenever I've interviewed for jobs, I've you know, I've been told, you know, we've all been told. And I've still certainly had times where I'm out in the field. And it's, you know, whether it's hour 14 and 80 degrees, or, you know, it's 4am and freezing rain. I'm just like, God, why am I doing this? And <laughs> yeah, it's a hard job. It's a really yeah. hard job and very difficult to have a turnover in the kind of pay that you guys deserve. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's, it's not unique to ACK. It's, it's an endemic problem um, 
I, you know, I can't speak for everywhere, obviously, but pretty much everyone I know in the U.S., um, myself included, has multiple jobs <laughs> and is kind of constantly piecing things together. And um, yeah, it's uh, there's not enough money in conservation, period. There's not enough money in dog training, period. And it doesn't get better when you combine the two. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, in, in Kenya, it's not as easy for people to have multiple jobs exactly. as it is in America either. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you have a job like this that is not paying enough to support a family, they have to leave and go yeah. into a higher paying job in yeah. order to support their family. And, and when you're doing conservation, you're not selling a product. Mm -hmm. You're selling an experience, you're selling enlightenment, you're selling knowledge, and that's what donors give money for. Um, but you're not selling a product that people buy and you can raise the price to give your people, your staff higher pay. Right. Right. So we yeah. rely completely. We are a hundred percent a donor dependent organization. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not an easy sell to try to continue year after year saying we need support for our dogs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially, you know, even with, you know, the differences between different um, countries or the internet situation, you know, out in Samburu, like there's no way that while you're at your field station in Samburu, you could maintain another job. Um, but at least here, and not that this is better, I think you're right that this, it, it makes the, the job thing harder um, or having multiple jobs because your handlers are full time. They live on site with the dogs. There's no ability to kind of juggle things versus how I do it because I run my own company. I'm able to say, okay, three days a week I'm working on canine conservationists, one day a week I'm teaching skiing, and one day a week I'm working on freelance writing. And I kind of cobble things together, or I freelance write in the evenings, or whatever. And that's just, yeah. I mean, A, it kind of sucks. <laughs> um, and B, it's it's not for everyone, um, just as far as their skill sets or what other whatever other jobs they want. And see, it's not always possible depending on, you know, where you are or what you're doing. So, you know, and we don't need to turn this into a finances gripe fest, but <laughs> but it is yeah. part of it. Well, you know, and then there's social life, too. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Where we have our field site, where the cheetahs live, is 40 minutes from the nearest town, mm -hmm. um, four to five hours from the nearest kind of city where there's a social life of any kind. Mm -hmm and 12 hours from Nairobi, where is the kind of center where a lot of people are based. Mm -hmm. So um, it isn't easy when you're living 24 seven with the same people and you get a short break to have a continuous social life of friends or family. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a really hard job for people to wanna to stay with for a very, very extended period of time. Um, not a lot of people like me just give up everything and say, this is what I want to do. I love living alone, you know, um, and, yeah. and, and living in, in isolation. But, but um, it's rewarding mm -hmm. for me. And, and I know that, you know, whether it's the couple of, of handlers that you're training right now with us or some of the next ones coming in, the right people will come forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think I – think you're making all the right steps. Not that I'm an expert, but it seems to me like you're you're thinking really far ahead and you're thinking about the right things here. So kind of with that, as we're more or less closing out here, what are some of the bigger dreams that you have, if you have any that you're excited to share um, for cheetahs, for scat dogs, for Kenya? What are you hoping to see um, in the next 5, 10, 15 years? So with, with the scat dogs program, um we will have between two and five years worth of work specifically in our management plan for the dogs. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can't just say, thanks dogs, bye, let's put you in a cage or let's give you to a no family. Um, we wanna make sure that the dogs also have some sustainability in the conservation world. Mm -hmm. So my dream for the Scat Dog Program is that we can show the conservation world here in Kenya the use of the dogs and we can extend into other species. We've had interest from people studying leopards, elephants, okapi, um, bongo. bongo, plants. Um, so we, we've got a lot of interest coming in now that we're establishing ourselves as an organization. So my dream for this program is that it will take a life of its own mm -hmm. and can be a project not just under ACK, but can be a project that goes underneath the carnivores, livelihoods, and landscapes element as a program that in, is in itself sustainable. Mm -hmm. For Action for Cheetahs in Kenya, um, we know that cheetahs are declining an average of about 2% annually throughout their range. 
and the connectivity side of things, the cub trade, the retaliation for um, livestock loss are all contributing to that loss. And so to increase what we can do for cheetahs, first of all, we need to have a really good education center that does good outreach. Mm -hmm. We need to have a facility that can handle um, orphan cheetahs that do come in, um, whether they get orphaned because of retaliation, hit by cars. And as we do this research to try to establish locations where cheetahs are sustainable, it would be great to be able to bring those babies back into the wild and make sure that they have a place where they can be sustainable. So our long-term goal is to have a conservation center mm -hmm. that encompasses the dog program, um, what to do with orphan and injured cheetahs, how to rehabilitate those cheetahs, and how to bring people both local and international in for educational opportunities. Yeah. Um, so that's the big grand plan. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, gosh, we're, uh, I think we're all in your corner and all really rooting for you. And, uh, you know, the team at Canine Conservationists is super excited to be involved and help out as much as we can or as much as we need. Um, and, uh, yeah. So with that, you know, we haven't talked much about the cub trade and I know you just had a pretty intense experience with the cub trade. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we've maintained a partnership with the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Um, whose main base there is in Namibia. Mm -hmm. However, the organization had found out about an area in Somaliland where most of the cub trade is passing through and getting into the port and getting into, into the trade industry alongside of the other illegal activities of ivory and rhino horns. Mm -hmm. um, so once they they started to work with the Somaliland government and found out that Somaliland was confiscating cubs but they didn't know what to do with them the Cheetah Conservation Fund helped set up some safe houses mm -hmm. um, which the Somaliland government does all of the law enforcement and is the ones who who confiscate these cubs and then the Cheetah Conservation Fund with their experience has been able to take care of the cubs mm -hmm. and it started there about four years ago um, with CCF and some of their partners and some friends of mine mm -hmm. and now they have a total of 80 cheetahs that holy cow um, and that is a survival rate of just a little over 50% of the cubs wow. that get taken in wow. um, so if you imagine if the Somaliland government wasn't enforcing the laws and if CCF wasn't there to take the cubs and how many of those actually survive to get to their ultimate destination and then what kind of quality of life do they have when they get there yeah. um, in the Middle Eastern countries where this cub trade is going into they advertise freely on social media so we have been working with these other partners to try to help raise that awareness that if you see that you report it and you ask the social media organizations not to endorse cub trade by allowing those things to be done um, of any of the illegal trade not just cheetahs right. um, it's yeah. happening with many species throughout the world that you can buy them on the internet so when you do see those kind of things, write to your social media representatives yeah. and ask them yeah. to please not allow this to happen on the social media. Channel. Yeah. Yeah, that's mind blowing to me. I couldn't even get on Facebook Marketplace here in, uh, yeah. here in Kenya. Uh, maybe that's why. Um, yeah. And to confirm, cheetahs are not suited to be pets, right? <laughs> no, not only not only does it take them out of the wild to make them yeah. into pets because they do not breed well in captivity, nor mm -hmm. should they mm -hmm. um, be bred for pets and yeah. on a grand scale of things. They're, they're wild cats. Yeah. Um, they are not the kind of cats like with lions and leopards and tigers that kill people easily. Mm -hmm. um, the cheetahs throughout historical records have been kept as pets by Cleopatra and Tsars mm -hmm. and Caesars who used them in, in sport and things like that. So because they are a docile animal, they've been brought into the pet trade easily mm -hmm. just because they, they... They don't actually eat you right away. You. Yeah. They don't kill you. Yeah. Um, but do they make good pets? No, they yeah. don't listen yeah. like a dog listens. They pee on things. They chew things. They have sharp claws it's not good to take their teeth and their claws yeah. out just to get God, them to yeah. stop doing that. Yeah. Um, but that is what some people will do. Um, so making good pets, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being habituated to being around humans, 
that's what makes them get into the pet trade in the first place. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I don't even remember what I was about to say. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I was going to ask one of the things that I was really shocked about when you were talking about um, your experience in Somaliland was kind of the conditions these cubs were being kept in during transport. And, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about that? But the thing that really boggles my mind is if we're if animal ethics aside, conservation aside, the economics of what you're describing don't make sense to me as far as the incredibly low survival rate. Um, I Again, conservation and animal rights aside, I don't understand how it makes sense to treat the cubs during transport the way that they're treated. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? The money for the cub trade is at the top. The people who buy from the, what do you call the people who connect people? Middlemen. The middlemen, the, 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 the dealers. Mm -hmm. So the dealers are making huge amounts of money. Yeah. They pay the middlemen a little bit of money and the middlemen pay the people who are pulling these cubs out of the wild even less. Yeah. However, you're looking at a very desperate yeah. group of people who are going through droughts and locusts and and livestock diseases and everything that's happening on the ground and every little bit of money for them is essential yeah. so you've got all of these tiers mm -hmm. in which the trade happens addressing it from the top down means finding the people who are buying those cubs yeah. addressing it from the bottom up means alternative livelihoods for them mm -hmm. to be able to survive without needing to do this yeah. illegal trade and those people on the ground put their lives on the line. They're the ones getting arrested, mostly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The middlemen sometimes, the top guys rarely get arrested. Yeah. So the middlemen are the ones putting their lives on the line for pittance. Mm -hmm. So when they pull a cub out of the wild, first of all, not knowing much about how to keep a cub surviving. Second of all, not making enough money to say, I'm going to spend good money to take good care of these cubs mm -hmm. to get them to the dealer. They're throwing them food that cheetahs don't eat. Yeah. What we've found in stomachs is soaked bread with milk, soaked rice, um, the little tiny fish that we call a mena here, mm -hmm. which is like a little smelt type mm -hmm. fish. Um, and she just don't eat fish, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they get, they, if they get food at all, they get high fatty, not boiled and cared well for. So the, the cubs that come into the confiscations are taken away from their mother for a period of time. Most of them will be put into a small room. We had 15 confiscated at once that we believe they were just thrown food into their cage. The biggest ones would get the food first. The little ones got no food. Mm -hmm. The ones who died in the initial stages, their stomachs were empty. Yeah. They were completely malnourished, dehydrated, and starving mm -hmm. to death. Yeah. Um, and so these people that pick up 15 cheetahs, maybe one or two or three get to the end person who pays $10,000 for it. Um, Which honestly seems like a shockingly low price to me. <laughs> like, I, you, yeah, it, it seems like that should be more expensive. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to make it more expensive. No, but <laughs> no, I, I just, no, I don't want it to be, yeah. I don't want it to be cheaper either, I guess. But um, <laughs> I would have thought it would be more. Right. Yeah. I, I think 10 to 15 to maybe uh -huh. 20,000 maximum is what yeah. people are paying in the end product. Mm -hmm. um, but but like I said, the people at the bottom end who are the ones right. grabbing a bunch of cheetahs, sticking them in boxes and saying, you know, give me my one hundred dollars for yeah. this, you know, right? Um, because that's all they have to live on. Right. And so, you know, you can kind of understand why people are doing it at those ends yeah. for that element. But when you look at how much these cubs suffer, I mean, I, you know, just coming yeah. back from Somaliland and, and holding these babies while they're dying and knowing that they were just with their mothers purring yeah. a few days before that or a yeah. week before that, yeah. um, it, it breaks your heart yeah. completely. Yeah, no, and that, I think that that was a piece that I had been missing as far as, obviously, it makes sense um, that you wouldn't know and that you're operating on this desperation economy of, yeah, of course this makes so much more sense and I can't believe I didn't see it. Of course you're not spending a bunch of time collecting a variety of meats or the correct milk or, you know, I don't know what cheetahs need as far as some sort of weird cheetah kitten milk replacement. Um, you know, of course they don't have access to that and they're not making enough money. They're Like the whole reason they're doing this is they don't have the money. So 
of course they're not taking care of these orphan cheetahs the way that a zoo or you all with rehab are able to. You know, and again, what the Cheetah Conservation Fund is doing right now, it's costing hundreds and thousands of dollars per cat Mm -hmm. to keep it alive. Um, The next thing that happens with these babies when they come from their mother, most of them are at an age where they would still be drinking some mother's milk, which gives them resistance to bacteria and diseases. You take away that mother's milk, you start throwing a new food at them, and suddenly their bacteria in their stomach goes berserk. Um, and they're more susceptible to all of the cat and dog diseases from every street dog that you step in unknowingly, poop or pee, out on the street. You bring it back into those cubs. They get exposed to something they've never been exposed to. So in addition to the malnourishment, the starvation, the dehydration, now you're bringing in bacteria and viruses that, that, you know, almost every cub that passed away in those few weeks that I was in Namibia was some different symptoms that all started out thinking it was just the malnourishment but then it looked like maybe it could be bacteria then well maybe it's a virus but you know you're sitting in a third world country where you don't have access to all of the best um, equipment and testing kits and things like that you by the time you mail it out of the country the baby's already gone Um, so it's a big combination of all of that that those cubs survival in transit is not happening too um, and, and so an issue that's being studied by the organization also is feline infectious peritonitis, mm-hmm. which all of you that have cats know that you vaccinate your cats against that, yeah. but not so much in third world countries. Yeah. Um, so FIP is prevalent in domestic cats and street cats. Um, when those cubs get brought into a city, mm. they then get exposed to FIP. Once a cat is positive for FIP, Even if you are vaccinating that cat and keeping its resistance up, it can test negative, but then two weeks later, something stresses that cat out, it becomes positive, it gets sick. So again, if if anybody's ever had a cat that keeps getting the recurrent cat flu Mm -hmm. is what a lot of times your vets will tell you, a lot of times it is FIP. And that FIP virus sheds every time the animal has symptoms. So therefore it it can get into other cats, cheetahs, lions, everything too. So about 60% of those cubs that are, are at the facility in Somaliland right now are positive for FIP. So even if it were possible to develop a facility as quickly as possible, get those cheetahs as wild as possible, you can't put them back in the wild. They're now sick and, and yeah. shedding a virus that will get into cats that haven't been vaccinated. Right. So it's impossible to put them yeah. back into the wild now. So what do you do? (laughs) It has to be addressed at all of these levels that we're talking about. It has to be addressed at the the bottom line people who are doing it to make a a cost of living. It's got to be the middlemen about why it's so wrong for them to be doing that. I mean, we have drugs in every country. The drug cartel are in the same thing. The middlemen are the ones who get shot all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they still do it for the pittance that they make out of it. And then you've got the dealers who are sitting high and pretty making lots of money but not even really completely some of those dealers don't even really know what happens on the ground they just know we get this little fluffy kitten we sell it for lots of money it's cute it's fun we made a lot of money yeah. you know but do they really care about the suffering right. and and a mother cheetah who just lost her babies and all of that yeah. they don't care it's all about money right and so I know you've also, you were talking last night, so we were at a presentation last night, and you were talking about some exciting research that's been coming out about, so these these cubs that are not FIP positive, potentially having some hope for being able to release them. Mm-hmm. There, There's a 15-year study that was just published um, by the Cheetah Conservation Fund, again, um, that actually looks at under what circumstances can they have success for putting cubs back into the wild. Okay. Um, and... You know, one of the first things that we've always tried to do in the past when you want to try to rehabilitate a cheetah is you think, okay, a mother cheetah, the cubs are released from the mother somewhere between 12 and 18 months on general. Mm -hmm. And so we want to get those cubs ready to go in a year and put them in the wild. And there was a less than 5% success rate in doing that. Uh Um, But what has been realized is if you take a little bit longer you also do have to have the right release circumstances. You have to have introductory areas. You have to be feeding the cubs the right food. You have to be taking the cubs for very long walks 
in order to teach a cheetah to be a cheetah. Mm -hmm. So that particular cheetah still may not live a lot of years in the wild, but it can live to reproductive age where it can produce some babies mm -hmm. and it can be free instead of in a cage, yeah. which is where cheetahs belong. Right. Well, and that also, you know, thinking of this from a background in animal sheltering, that then frees up staff time and resources and a run, I suppose you probably don't use kennels, for the next round of cubs that are coming in. Um, because one of the things I'm imagining is this pace of, you know, in four years in Somaliland, they've got 80 cats. They can't keep growing at that rate, can they? They can't, like, yeah. A, a year ago, I went there to assist with some of the design elements. I used to design exhibits in zoos mm -hmm. um, as my career. Uh -huh. um, and so I was asked by CCF to come and take a look at where their facilities were and what I would recommend from an exhibit design standpoint and from my now more knowledge about cheetahs in the mm -hmm. wild as well. And we were at first designing a place for 100 cheetahs. Mm -hmm. And actually, yeah, they had, they had about when I was there then, they had about maybe, what, 45 or something like that. So we thought 100 cheetahs at first would be good. And and it was like, no, we really actually have to start designing for, like, 200. Yeah. Um, and, and for what are we going to do with the 60% that are carrying FIP if we don't find a way um, between the domestic cat researchers and the wild cat researchers to control FIP? They can't go back. Yeah. So you have to design some place where they can be. And you have to work very, very much with the people enforcing the law to stop these cubs from getting in there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this brings us back to the dogs, by the way. <laughs> Great. And, yeah. and why it's so important that we get all of the national survey done with the dogs is because the genetics from the samples throughout Kenya are going to show us about 25% of the cubs that are coming through Kenya, we believe, are coming from either Tanzania or Kenyan populations. Through Somaliland? Into Kenya? Somaliland, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did I, did I say that wrong the first time? Yeah, you said a Kenya twice. <laughs> about 25% of the cubs that are coming into Somaliland mm -hmm. are coming from these lower countries. Gotcha. And if we can find where in our countries they're coming from, because they're obviously getting through our strictness. Clearly. Because yeah. Kenya does have an extremely good Kenya Wildlife Service and a very good anti-poaching, anti-trade program going, but still rhinos, elephants, and cheetahs are still getting through it. Mm -hmm. But if we can find where those sources are coming from mm -hmm. and we can get the right kind of enforcement, the right kind of community programs going, people turning each other in when they know that it's happening, those people who care, and finding a way to stop those cubs from getting yeah. taken out in the first yeah. place. I mean, that's really the only way is to address the top end, the okay. bottom end, and to police the middle ends. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whew. Is the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I I yeah, I'm in awe right now. Like it's one thing, you know, I I know a lot of these things cuz we've been talking for what, 3 months now, but um you've got a big job ahead of you and I I'm impressed. So, is there anything else you wanted to bring up or mention or talk more about before we wrap up and then we will definitely tell people where to donate and some of the things that you're in desperate need of right now? <laughs> I, yeah, I think I've, I've probably talked about a lot of the things that I've wanted to share. Um, and, you know, specifically, you know, students looking to get into projects. We do have volunteer programs, mm -hmm. um, student programs for people who are coming both locally or support of, sorry, internationally or support of local students mm -hmm. so we can continue to build capacity. Um, you know from, from what we, you and I have talked about, about employing international people, I prefer to employ Kenyans. Yeah, so I would much prefer to build capacity in Kenya um, with the hopes that people like you are willing to volunteer some time to help build mm -hmm. that capacity. Yeah. Um, and, and I believe that you know we have the skills in place to move forward with that capacity building in a way that it doesn't need to be an international person running a program like this. That's my hope. I, uh... You know, I, I, I love being here <laughs> and I'm excited to be here, but I I would be really excited to be replaced by a Kenyan as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> 
So um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and get this published as soon as possible. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your birthday fundraiser, some stuff on your Amazon wish list, and then we'll include all of those links in the show notes um, and people can get get that going before we head on up to Samburu. Okay. Yes, our um, Carnivores, Livelihoods, and Landscapes, like I said, is the 501c3 organization. I think the majority of your audience is American, so that makes a difference. Um, And we have GoFundMe campaigns. Both of our dogs have birthdays in March and April, and my birthday is in April, so every year I do launch a happy birthday to Mary and and the dogs. Mm -hmm. And so that is on GoFundMe right now. Um, We have a Facebook for our vaccination and sterilization campaign that is running at the moment too which is also through facebook goes through the the Mm -hmm. carnivores charity um and so that is running general donations through our website Mm -hmm. um the action for cheetahs in kenya website and you know like i said we're 100 percent donor dependent so individual donors organizational donors in-kind support um amazon um smile we have our site is all set up for that so whenever you make a purchase on amazon you can have your small percentage that doesn't affect what you pay in the mm-hmm. end but amazon itself makes those donations to charities like ours mm-hmm. so we are set up on that as well yeah and i know one of the things we're specifically looking for as well as walkie talkies um and radios so and all of those links to make sure they're compatible are going to be online don't just buy us a radio and send it um and then i will also throw out there that we would we would gladly take um any books on dog training if you've got an old dusty copy sitting on your shelf well-thumbed copies we'll take them um and then waste leashes and puzzle toys are some of the other things we've been looking at for the dogs as far as improving some welfare there so if you're interested in anything like that anything used that you have lying around um shoot me an email at canineconservationist at gmail.com and we will figure out how to get it over here. We've got people coming in and out of the country who can carry it over so we don't have to deal with international shipping. So Mary, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for so much for this conversation. We'll have several more episodes planned about the time here. Um, but for now, yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to get you up to Samburu so you can see where we're doing this all for because you've been in Nairobi where it's been wonderful for birds and monkeys and things, um, but we want to get you seeing some cats too. Yeah, I um, I still feel like I have to pinch myself every so often and remind myself that I'm in Kenya, um, and I'm I'm very excited as well. It's going to be a you know a fun international cross country road trip nothing like it um and as always everyone make sure you check out our patreon over at patreon.com slash canine conservationists you can find all of the links for the show night show notes at canineconservationists.org and we will talk to you next time